Welcome to Ghosts Were People Too, a podcast that investigates ghosts through the lens of the arts and humanities. I'm Quest. And I'm Annabelle. Annabelle, what would you say if I told you that you just want a mansion in a sweepstakes you never entered in the first place? Uh, I would tell you that my bags are already packed. Uh, how soon can I leave? That depends. Do you have a flashlight and a vacuum cleaner handy? You know I do. Come on in and make yourself at home. If you start to get scared, hum a tune under your breath as we explore the 2001 GameCube classic, Luigi's Mansion. So today we are delving into the realm of video games. Video games as a newer medium, I found it harder to find critical resources on this. There was nothing coming up for me really on JSTOR, on Google Scholar, anything like that. And I have a couple projects that I'm working on that do involve video game scholarship, and I don't know if I'm just not looking in the right places, if it's just not accessible to me as a layperson. But I found it kind of difficult because, you know, the way that we're trained to research things is you look at what's said about that thing already and then you branch off from there, kind of. So what I had to do was I found a couple resources attached to the specific ideas I wanted to talk about. But by and large, I had to turn to video essays, which I adore and I think that they have a lot of good material, but obviously they are not your traditional, respected academic source. Yeah. What was your experience like? Very similar. I may have watched a few video essays, but I think YouTube was a resource for me in that I watched Let's Plays of Luigi's Mansion because I have never played this game before. I didn't have a GameCube growing up. I think we definitely played GameCube together, but not this game. And so... My um, close to primary source of experiencing the game was to watch Let's Plays. Um, but yeah, I didn't find any academic sources on Luigi's Mansion itself or even on Mario. If someone wants to send us some resources on Mario, that would be really cool because I feel like it should be written about. It is one of the most famous games of all time. I used a lot of fan-made wiki pages, a lot of amazing resources created by nerds in order to do this research. And I think in the next 10 years, we are going to have a lot more academic research and academic papers published on video games because I think that they are some of the most interesting storytelling vehicles that we have right now. But we're not there yet. We are still sort of in a place where YouTube channels and blogs respect these games more so than academic spaces. And so that's where I went. Uh, and beyond that, I did some research in Gothic studies, which are mostly referencing literature and film, and also photography and portraiture. So that's, that's where I did a lot of my research. And now that you say that, it reminds me that one of the sources I was reading was about either Silent Hill or Resident Evil. I get the two mixed up sometimes. Uh, it will be in the show notes, so you'll be able to find out, and so will I. Yeah. But those are more adult games, so I do wonder if also there has been less critical attention brought to Nintendo games as mostly media intended for children. 
Yeah. What is exciting about this, of course, is that given our independent research on this topic, we're going to be contributing some original thoughts to this. I think that some of our last episodes, a lot of the things that we've put forth while being our own thoughts are also things you could find elsewhere mm-hmm. but i think this is going to be a, a gwp2 original <laughs> luigi's mansion hot off the press <laughs> <laughs> yeah to your point about children's games i do think we are first going to see scholarship on things like the last of us and you know more quote-unquote serious adult games i feel like that's going to come out first but how can you write about a video game and the storytelling of a video game without going back to the roots of games. And I feel like we are sort of going in that direction. Although 2001 in the history of gaming, we're already kind of in establishment territory in some ways. The video game canon. Yeah, yeah. So, well, let's get into it. Let's. So I'm going to share a synopsis of Luigi's Mansion if you have not played it or if it has been since 2001, which I don't want to scare you, but that's over 20 years ago. If it's been that long since you played this game or if you've never played it before, here's what we're working with. A mysterious notice arrives for Luigi, informing him that he has won a luxurious mansion in a contest. Despite the fact that he never entered any contest to begin with, Mario decides to check out the house first, but when Luigi arrives in the dead of night, his brother is nowhere to be found. A menacing ghost corners Luigi, and the sprightly and eccentric Professor E. Gad tries to save him with his souped-up vacuum cleaner, the Poltergust 3000. The duo escapes to Egad's lab, where Luigi learns that the mansion only appeared a couple of days prior to his arrival. Armed with the Poltergust 3000 and Game Boy Horror, Luigi returns to the mansion to continue his search for Mario and capture the portrait ghosts that escaped from Egad's collection. Luigi unwittingly unleashes the mischievous booze. The entire... <laughs> the ent... <laughs> Damn... The entities, you really were trying to give me a workout here. You're like, you do this. (laughs) The entities who released the portrait ghosts. He continues to explore the mansion, capturing portrait ghosts and boos until he discovers Mario imprisoned within a painting. Luigi battles the evil mastermind King Boo and frees his brother. The haunted house vanishes, and Luigi uses the treasure he collected on his quest to construct his own mansion where the ghostly one once stood. So if you've ever played Mario games, this one actually has a plot. There's actually a more considerable plot than any of the, you know, the traditional platforming Mario games. The plot's a little bit absurd, but it does have a beginning, middle, and end, so... And it makes internal sense it does and we are going to talk about it because we can (laughs) like there's actually something to talk about right and this is one of the many examples of how luigi's mansion is a departure from the typical mario game Mm -hmm. which which was obviously the intent and a selling point yeah right so now that we're talking from the business side of things the not 
narrative half all cover the development and the reception of Luigi's Mansion. Because part of the reality of video games is that you have to come up with an intriguing concept that's going to sell in order to tell your story, which, I mean, that's not, that's not all that different from movies or books, but there's a particular, there's a whole team, right? Yeah. And there's also, there's some specific context in the background that is going to come up in points that we're going to make later. Yeah. The original concept for the game was Mario exploring a ninja house, something that would later be shown in Super Mario 3D World. In order to use room exploration mechanics as a scene in the Legend of Zelda titles. For easier gameplay, the developers removed the fourth wall, causing the setting to resemble a dollhouse, which led to the decision to make the game take place in a haunted house. Due to this tonal shift, the developers decided to make the timid Luigi the protagonist instead of his courageous brother Mario. Luigi's Mansion was one of the release titles for the GameCube, in contrast to the N64's flagship title, Super Mario 64. Much of the game's design can be attributed to the greater technical capabilities of the GameCube over the N64. This allowed for the creation of so many rooms, each fully furnished with unique, interactable assets that make the setting believable and feel like a real space. As was the case with many of the GameCube's experiments, the game was first met with skepticism and a lukewarm response. Despite this, it has now garnered cult adoration and received two sequels, Luigi's Mansion Dark Moon in 2013 for the 3DS, and Luigi's Mansion 3 in 2019 for the Switch. It's also a mainstay with cameo appearances in Super Mario Sluggers, uh, Mario Kart, Super Smash Bros., any one of the party Mario games, there will be little inklings of Luigi's Mansion or Luigi and Ghosts having this this adversarial relationship. I have a couple of things to comment on when it comes to the development of this game. Number one, poor Luigi. He always receives a lukewarm response, but this is his chance to shine, and so we're going to give him a little love. But also, as you were talking about the influence of GameCube technology on this game. I was thinking about how we have a recurring theme in the podcast of technology dictating the storytelling when it comes to ghosts, whether it's with photographs or with um, cartoons. cartoons. There's just always some sort of relationship between the media and the ghost. And so I think it's really interesting that, again, we have the video game technology telling us how we're going to experience the rooms in this haunted house. Yeah, I hadn't thought about that. It is always the year of Luigi on Ghosts for People too. You heard that here. That's right. <laughs> Wear green because you support Luigi. <laughs> All right, let's talk about, since we're talking about the influence of the technology on the experience of the haunted house, let's talk about the actual gameplay, which is how you experience this house. It is so funny because like covering a book, you don't have to talk about this is written with chapters and you read from left to right. Like it's so I, funny that with the video game, the the ways that we have to decide that we're going to break things down because we're 
unfortunately, we are outsiders to what video game academia looks like. You know what, though? As a English teacher, I have to say, when I give students a book, we do that kind of book talk where it's like, okay, what does the cover look like? Are there chapters? Are there sections? It's actually not all that foreign when it comes to analysis that's book talk t-a-l-k right not Not, t-o-k not book no we definitely don't do no tiktok in class tiktok is for after class um let it (laughs) and let me just say that at this point i don't i cannot talk about i can't even say the word talk anymore i cannot talk about future me but at this point i am not on tiktok and we are not on tiktok no we're not uh, send us an email if you want us to be on TikTok. Ghosts were people to gwp2pod at gmail.com. All right. Gameplay. Luigi wields two main tools throughout the game, the Poltergust 3000 and his trusty flashlight. The ghosts will approach him when he's in the darkness and he uses his flashlight to stun them. And then they become vulnerable and he sucks them into the vacuum. It's very Ghostbusters. Mm-hmm. Makes me feel good. Also, the Poltergust can wield the powers of fire, ice, and water by inhaling elemental sprites. Then there's also the Game Boy Horror, which is a pun on Game Boy Color that probably works better in Japanese than in English. I don't know. I don't know who it works for i mean it it works for me i think it's cute it's cute and i think kids probably thought it was cute because game boy colors mattered a lot in 2001 that's true so it was relevant yeah and the the game boy horror doesn't this help you out with your location yeah it has a map function i was i was watching a let's play this morning while i was working on the slides Mm -hmm. and I was thinking about how smartphone-like it is. Oh, You can yeah. video call with EGAD on it. You can keep <laughs> track of the collectibles. And you can view a map. It even, every time Luigi collects a key, it opens the map automatically and shows you which door that key corresponds with. Wow, I wonder if anyone has done any sort of analysis or research as to how the Game Boy impacted the development of the smartphone because you know that tech bros who were making smartphones were so into game boys at the time like you know like yeah it it seems like the demographic it's the same circle right right well and also again we see this intersection of new developments in technology being used to track a ghost like, what if we took this thing that's cutting edge mm-hmm. and applied it to ghost hunting? Yeah. Also, before we move on, I just want to mention that there's also in the gameplay a emphasis on going from room to room in the mansion and you unlock doors and that's how you get to new spaces and that's how you encounter new ghosts. And so that is another aspect of the game right yeah there's also a function on the game boy horror 
that's almost like a Pokédex of the portrait ghosts. You can oh, read yeah. a little bio of each one. Yes. And that's how we know, besides little encounters with them and the things they say and do, that's how we know who they are supposed to be as characters, right? Yeah, that's pretty much the only insight we have into them. There are short little dialogue sections when you encounter them. And then beyond that, I think that's pretty much it, just the the collection screen. Yeah. Is now a good time to talk about how the Poltergeist 3000 is very much like a proton pack from Ghostbusters? So I don't remember the original Ghostbusters super well, other than knowing that there's the similarity in the household appliance being reused. Yeah, well, I'm I'm no expert. I have not seen the original Ghostbusters. I haven't seen any Ghostbusters. I just outed myself big time. Don't worry. We will do episodes on them. We will rectify this. We will talk about the sexism. (laughs) Well, I'm just embarrassed to say that I'm any sort of ghost academic and I've never seen Ghostbusters. I'm, I'm a baby child. Okay. I'm, I was not born when Ghostbusters came out. So do forgive me. I will fix that. Boston makes me feel good. You're a baby child, and yet you have students who weren't born when Luigi's Mansion came out. That's true, which incidentally was also the same year that 9-11 <laughs> happened. Um, but I digress. <laughs> uh, for the record, I, I don't think that 9-11 is funny. I just think it's really crazy to think about. Like, people not being alive in 2001. I was thinking about the Poltergeist 3000. Just, I mean, even if here, for the even younger people, if you've seen Stranger Things and you've seen them dress up with their their little Ghostbuster backpack, it's very much the same sort of imagery where you have a backpack with a vacuum on it and it sucks up the ghosts. And so I can't help but think that that's where this comes from. Oh, absolutely. But it's also interesting, and I think this is going to be a really good segue, the way that it is a trope for domestic items to be weaponized against the ghost, because we have the proton pack. I'm pretty sure in Ghostbusters 2016, which is what I have a better memory of because I've seen it more recently, I think there are also a certain amount of like home-brewed items in their arsenal Mm -hmm. i'm also thinking about how danny phantom captures ghosts in a thermos oh that's right and so as we're about to turn into discussion of the haunted house as a trope there is this concurrent trope of using items from the domestic sphere yeah and even a game boy could be considered part of the domestic sphere i think that a lot of us have warm fuzzy feelings about carrying the game boy around and like having it in your bedroom and you know it's it's very much part of home and childhood okay well then let's move forward let's talk about haunted houses let's talk about sort of the the bigger picture of what a haunted house can be in storytelling let's do it so what's really funny prefacing this because i'm there's going to be so much haunted house media for us to talk about throughout any episode i want to go on record and say that as far as like the gothic monsters go i think the haunted house is my favorite monster 
Interesting. I think the haunted house is my favorite space. And I like that we think of it as a monster and a space. She can do it all. She's an icon. She's a legend. And she is the moment. (laughs) So what is she? Who is she? Who 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 is, is she? Who is haunted house? A haunted house is a house with ghosts in it. But more specifically, the emergence of ghosts in a domestic space embodies a fear that there is danger in the sanctuary of the home. The home is something we imagine as being a place in which we are completely safe. We are in control. This is our shelter from the elements and attackers. And we have raised up these walls and now we are safe inside. And the haunted house says no. Very much like the home invasion film says no to that. So this is kind of the ultimate uncanny if we're going to bring it back to Freud, which, you know, we kind of always have to because so much haunted house and just gothic scholarship goes back to this concept of the uncanny, which is Heimlich and Unheimlich, which I'm pronouncing in the least German way possible, but that literally means homely and unhomely. So this idea that what feels familiar and makes you feel at home simultaneously produces feelings of unease and not feeling at home. There's no place like home. The uncanny comes from this idea of feeling at home, being in your home. And the home as an extension of the self. the self, which Freud's student... Carl Jung actually did some writing on as well. He had a whole, I'm not going to get far into it, but he had a whole idea about how when you dream about a house, you are really dreaming about yourself and that the parts of the house could be compartmentalized into different parts of your own identity. And it gets almost into the astrological sort of realm where he has a certain level of the house corresponds to a certain part of your mind, uh, which is really interesting, although perhaps a little too specific. I think that dreams are probably more fluid than that. But it's interesting to think that a house can be an extension of your mind and your body and that your living space is not only the physical space that you live in, but also a representation of you and an extension of you. Well, hello, and welcome to my home. Yeah. And in Luigi's mansion, the house extends out to you. The house invites him in. He receives this invitation. And often in haunted house media, the house acts like an anglerfish. It lures the characters inside through a promise of safety being a house Mm -hmm. or a promise of discovery only for them to discover its nefarious nature. And I'm sure you can come up with a bunch of examples where either the people are brought to the house because it's haunted or they're brought to the house and then find out it's haunted or they are trapped and they you know it's raining and they they need somewhere to shelter themselves and this is the only place and then they find out that it wasn't any safer inside than it was outside i was gonna add to that but that's just so perfect and the only thing i could start doing is saying you know yeah rocky horror the haunting of hill house um what's the stephen king one where the the family 
with the with the the dog that comes back to life. Pet cemetery. Pet cemetery. You know, the family goes and moves into a house to find safety and and peace and quiet. And of course, that's not what they find. So right. You know, the big three horror movies. <laughs> Rocky Horror, The Haunting, the Haunting of, of Hill House. House, and Pet Cemetery. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's it. That's all you need. So a lot of my research here came from a chapter, I believe it was, by Diane Goldstein. Goldstein says, Ghosts and their haunted domains are inseparable in ghost stories because the presence of the ghost is what changes an otherwise mundane place into a portal through which the living encounter the realm of the supernatural. Which is, that's, that you could put that on the back of Luigi's Mansion and sell it, you know? It could be the synopsis on the back, essentially. Right. Like You want a mansion, you think now you get to rest, but whoops, it's a portal into the land of the dead. Yes. And Whoopsie. not only is it a portal, but also, and this coming back to them being my favorite monster, it is very common in haunted house media for the ghost to transcend the status of the bad place. And that's coming from Carol Clover, Men, Women, and Chainsaws, that concept of the bad place, and then become a character in its own right, which is kind of the hallmark of Jackson, right? Shirley Jackson yes. is the the trope codifier, as they say on TV tropes. Mm-hmm. And I just, I love a house being a character. I love a city being a character. I love the anthropomorphization of space. Yeah. The house becomes alive in its presence. And we will definitely have to do an episode on this, but I was just talking to a friend about House of Leaves. And without spoiling anything, that's definitely a house that becomes a character. I bring it up because I think that when we think of a house or a space, we tend to think of it as static. And part of what makes a haunted house feel so uncomfortable is that oftentimes it is not static it's changing and that is more like a character and more like a person than the way that we view space at least in the united states and europe like we we tend to think of a place as static and humans have to enact actions upon it in order for it to become activated activated yeah but in in the case of a haunted house it activates itself. And so that's part of what makes it into a character. And so I was just thinking about how House of Leaves is a perfect example of that because the house changes of its own volition. And so that makes it a character. House of Leaves came out a year before Luigi's Mansion. For real? Yeah. Oh my goodness. That's so cool. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah, 2000. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What makes Luigi's Mansion unique? Because there are games before it that involve going through a a creepy castle or something, Castlevania, famously. (laughs) With this new capability of delving into 3D space in a way that feels even more immersive than the N64 did, Luigi's Mansion gives us greater opportunity to engage with a space that feels like we're actually inside it. Mm -hmm. And 
that's not to say anything ill of the N64. The N64 is, and every thing preceding, because we're not only talking about Nintendo, obviously, has its own immersion that was different from the generations prior. But when you get onto the GameCube, you have these graphical capabilities of rendering these rooms with so much greater detail. It feels so three-dimensional, and you feel so in it. Yeah. And so this is going to link back to our prior episode on cartoons, how cartoons were taking from traditions established in silent film, and silent film was taking traditions that were established in theater and in horror houses, fun house amusements. Video games, as a medium, have a semiotic similarity with amusement park rides because they are both a first-person mediatized experience, whereas a film, you are watching a character go through these things, and you are just audience. You become not self watching this. In a video game, you control the first player character, even if you are not having a first player uh, viewpoint, like a perspective through their eyes. You are still. Luigi becomes your incarnation in the game world. Super Luigi Galaxy! So, haunted house rides and video games both encourage the audience to analyze and engage with the space around them to look at the set dressing to learn about the family who once resided inside this haunted house but the key difference is that even though you are a first person experiencing the ride you still have no agency in the way you experience it there is a track and you are run through it. There are set rooms, and you go through them on a path that you are led, if it's by foot, you know, like right. like a maze. Even if it's a horror maze or a haunted house attraction where you're walking through, they call it a walkthrough, right? There's one path. So the fact that you get to choose where you go and choose the pace at which you go through, there's nothing scaring you forward, really, in a game gives you that extra sense of agency, which I think adds to the feeling of having something at stake in the story. Absolutely. Yeah, exactly. And you get to act upon the information as you gather it. Whereas if you are riding through the Haunted Mansion, you can see all of these clues and it can make your experience richer, but there's nothing you can do. Whereas when I am playing Luigi's Mansion and I encounter the first portrait ghost and he's reading his book, I can look at the setting and I can investigate it and act upon that to solve the puzzle to defeat that mm -hmm. ghost. I'm, I bet there is scholarship on this, although if there isn't, there should be. But I wonder if the experience of playing a game is stored in our memory in a way that's closer to actual life experiences than reading or going through a theme park ride. I wonder if the element of agency makes it feel more like a personal memory. Because I feel like when I talk to friends who grew up with video games, they hold these games in a nostalgic place that goes beyond 
like, oh, I loved watching this TV show and is more like, remember when we experienced Ocarina of Time? Right. You get more ownership of that experience than you do when it is through a a book or a film or a TV show where it is already at a certain different level of remove from you. I think that's a good point. And I think that leads me in perfectly to discussion of ludic space. So ludic means regarding play. Goldstein points out that children's games and children's media frequently use these meta houses to explore the limits of reality through imaginative play. So we can think of dollhouses, playhouses, fun houses, tree houses, playing house, Mm -hmm. and then haunted houses. These are all spaces that you get to dress up in your mind as whatever the experience you want it to be is. It's a perfect stage to act out whatever fantasy you want to act out. Mm -hmm. And Luigi's Mansion becomes another meta house that you can act out this fantasy of exploring a haunted house in a more immersive way. Right. Very cool. This is totally an aside, and we can cut this if you want, but do you remember the haunted house tree in elementary school? There was the heart tree. There was the tree that produced horses (laughs) that you could ride around, and then there was the haunted house tree. I only remember the heart tree. Okay. I think the heart tree was the haunted house tree, but the the corner next to the fence was the haunted house tree. I. I don't remember anything about what the game entailed. Yeah, what the game entailed with the haunted house tree. I just know that one of them was the haunted house tree. So we we did have a childhood haunted house play imaginative space in the form of a tree because the trees were the demarcations of the different areas of the playground. Anyway, that is so (laughs) funny. Had to throw that out there from the our personal history. So one thing that is really funny about children and haunted houses is that they are both an exciting space and a terrifying space. And I think if you look at any pop media regarding Halloween that's directed towards children, you can really see that tension that sometimes the old spooky house is just full of wonder and good things like scary godmother. And sometimes it actually is the bad place. There actually is some amount of horror there. Mm-hmm. And part of how the bad place operates is that it both represents a threat to the protagonist. You see the scary house on the hill, but it also occludes knowledge of that threat. You see that it's a house and you know that it's scary, but you would have to go inside to find out what and why. Someone can tell you that that's where the old man lived and he tortured his wife and then they died and now it's haunted forever, but you won't know how. You won't know if the stories are true until you go in there. Right. And it's, it's a don't open the box situation. Oh, uh, what's in the box? Exactly. And so a video game gives you a space in which you can exist in that haunted space and experience it through exploration, through battling enemies, and through solving puzzles to learn the space, to learn the story. And all of those experiences, and this is coming directly from one of my sources, create an affect of vulnerability for the player because you are experiencing 
all of these things through your incarnation in the game, it makes you feel like you are at like in some sort of danger. It is a technology that projects you into this space so you can vicariously feel vulnerable. In everyday language, if you have ever played a game where you know that there are enemies in the next room and you cross the threshold into the next stage of the game and you feel your muscles tense and you're going like you're playing a zombie game and you just you know there are zombies in the next room and every part of you is freaking out and um, maybe you've even enhanced the experience by turning the lights out and it's nighttime like I, I have friends who will not play certain games alone or will not play certain games at certain times of day because it is so immersive and that experience of crossing the threshold is so strong that it just produces this really intense experience, even yeah. if it's a Mario game. Right. I I was a scaredy cat as a child. I still am a scaredy cat as an adult. <laughs> I have a tendency for my imagination to run away with me. And I, for a lot of Luigi's Mansion, I watched my older brother play it. Shout out to Zane. But when I finally got my turn... I didn't get very far because I was too scared to go <laughs> yeah. any further. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and, and that's, again, part of the thrill of it and part of what makes it meaningful. Because if it, if it felt like there was no risk, then it wouldn't be as immersive. Yeah. One of the things that's really interesting about the, the mansion in Luigi's Mansion is that it exists in two different aesthetic universes at the same time to create this horror effect. One of the things that I'm always saying is that a failure of a lot of of creepy doll or creepy clown memorabilia or media is that while we all know the experience of looking at a doll and being like, I don't like how that looks, (laughs) or looking at a clown and being like, that's not very cute. Yeah. When you actually go into the realm of the recent It remake mm-hmm. or Annabelle or Megan, you should probably run. When you're actually trying to make it look terrifying, you fail immediately because mm-hmm. the whole point of the uncanny is the subtlety is it was made to look cute. It was made to look like a, a thing for a child to play with. Hi, I'm Chucky and I'm your friend to the end. And it fails at that. Right. And so when you create a space that is too immediately terrifying, gross, abject, it's not going to be creepy in the same way that Luigi's Mansion gets to be creepy. Right. It neutralizes it. Yeah. So Luigi's Mansion has two different atmospheres. There is the overall ambiance of the house. It has a detail and a specificity of the set dressing that give the impression of the house having been lived in. Each room is depicted as serving a specific and unique and often realistic function. Additionally, the color palette, the style of furniture, the dust effects when Luigi shakes things, and the commentary that Luigi gives you through the Game Boy Horror commentary, it all makes the house seem like a dated real space where people once lived then overlaid on that canvas we have a second ambiance 
the elements of horror. The rooms are now infested with ghosts, they're dark, they're dimly lit. The music and the sound effects communicate the threat level to the player, depending on whether the mansion theme is being chanted by ghosts, whether it's being played on an organ, whether Luigi is whistling it, Also, there are various levels of Luigi's panic that you can hear as he is doing the theme, depending on how much health he has. And... Through that, Luigi is creating cues for the player to gauge how much terror they should be feeling <laughs> through his humming and his whistling and his distressed calls for Mario <laughs> and his chattering teeth. And all of that is is instructing you how to feel as you play. That being said, I think there's also a third layer, which is the mario aesthetic you know the gamecube cartoonish sometimes even cute aesthetic that exists in the game that allows you if you wish to maintain a little bit of distance so this isn't a silent hill style (laughs) game right it is still for children and it is still cartoonish and so in a certain way that provides a third layer where it kind of dulls it yeah i was gonna say tamps down yeah it it dulls the terror you can still totally buy into the the cues and and the creepiness of the whole feeling but there are funny elements there are things that are kind of purposefully hokey like the doctor or the there's ghosts that throw banana peels for you to slip on right to me that's like the the third layer of the experience i think that's a perfect addition i hadn't even thought of that also the ghosts are very brightly colored right a thing that's also uh really interesting and this also comes into play with super mario sunshine which will come up a little bit later in this episode is that this is also a period in mario where they're really playing with the iconicity of the enemies. Mm-hmm. We don't see Koopas, Goombas, Bloopers, any of the standard Mario enemies. The only exception to that, as far as I can recall, is one of the ghosts in Luigi's Mansion resembles a shy guy. Those mm-hmm. are the ones they're red with a hood and a mask. Yeah. Well, um, also the boss. <laughs> yes. Yes. Yeah. And the only element from the Mushroom Kingdom is toad throughout mm-hmm. the house there are all these different toads and toad is also sort of a comic relief or a little bit of sunshine in the darkness <laughs> and even then because toad serves a similar function in 64 
It's also really interesting that when you find Toad, he's crying. Every Toad is crying and, and desperately needs Luigi's help. Yeah, poor Toad. So there's this juxtaposition of the horror elements and the Mario elements. And I think that they work in tandem to mm-hmm. both make the horror less devastating for children. See our last episode. Yeah. But also to kind of give you a little twist on Mario. Right. Well, and if you are invested in these characters, then whether or not they are cartoonish, you're going to feel scared for Luigi and you're going to feel sorry for Toad. And you're going to be thinking, where is Mario? What happened to Mario? Is he okay? And so if you are invested in those characters, it does add to the emotional impact of the whole thing because these sweet cartoonish characters are being put into this really scary situation. The horror. And they're going to be turned into portraits. So as we go from the house as a whole to the specific paintings that adorn it, summarizing what I've been saying here, The terror of the haunted house lies in the liminality not of the space but of our presence within it. By exploring abandoned mansions and encountering their ghostly denizens, we must face the reality that our residences once belonged to someone else, and they will belong to someone else after we leave. In other words, we confront both our mortality as well as our legacy. What's funny is that I didn't actually say any of that, but that's the undercurrent of everything we have been saying about the fact that Luigi's Mansion as a haunted house has to be constructed to be believable so that way you feel weird about being there and weird that there are these ghosts here. Mm-hmm. It is a fundamental part of the horror because if it was just a cardboard box in the shape of a house, you would not feel as viscerally about it as you do. Yeah. Let's talk about the portrait ghosts. I think something that portraits have in common with houses when it comes to their hauntedness is that way that they make us confront our mortality as well as our legacy. They exist in a fixed point in time longer than we do. Right. So we touched on this when we talked about spirit photography, but even before photography, we have paintings of people And we'll get into the function of those paintings, but a major feature of portraiture is you are trying to capture a person in time. Oftentimes it's a very expensive endeavor, and so you're going to display it somewhere in your house. And hopefully, if you have the resources in your very expensive house, and then the portrait will outlive you, and the house will outlive you, and generations of Your family will look at you up on that wall and remember that you once lived in this house. You are the reason that they have this house. And, you know, all of these things are tied to stories of generational wealth and legacy. That's what portraits really evoke for me when I think about gothic portraits. And we're going to talk a lot more about that. There's also the aspect, I hope I'm not anticipating please (laughs) that it's a dated tradition with the proliferation of photography it's not really something that we need to do anymore it doesn't hold the same thing so by it 
existing in Luigi's Mansion, it helps date this house further, put it further back in time from the present moment in which you're playing it. Definitely. I think that is at play in Luigi's Mansion for sure, and in a lot of contemporary media that uses the portrait. Although, what I found in my research is that portraiture holds that sort of haunted quality even before photography takes over. There's just something inherently about capturing a person in time with this, for lack of a better word, bougie way way of capturing their image that holds a lot of potential for hauntings. Let's talk about the game, why we're even talking about portraits. So there are these recurring ghosts. They're your enemies and bosses in the game that are being collected as quote-unquote portrait ghosts. I'm going to read you a quote from Professor Elvin Gad, who I think I called doctor <laughs> earlier, but anyway. He says, I collected famous ghosts from all over the world and turned them into paintings, but those darn boos went and turned them all back into ghosts again. You've got to catch those ghosts so I can turn them back into paintings. So there's your instructions for the game, right? That's what you have to do as Luigi. You have to go and capture these ghosts and turn them back into paintings because the ghosts have escaped from their portraits. And so a major part of the game is going and sucking up these ghosts in your Poltergust 3000 and bringing them back to Professor Gad to put them through a machine that is going to turn them back into paintings. Most of the portrait ghosts look like they did when they were alive or like they did in their portraits, maybe a little bit more transparent. (laughs) And what I think is interesting about this whole premise is that your goal in the game is to make the invisible visible or to make the partially visible tangible. This machine that here we are talking about technology again, this machine called the ghost portrait. I'm going to try this. This is tough. Ghost portrifications. <laughs> Very serious business. This machine takes the ghosts, puts them through all these little chambers, and on the other end, a portrait comes out. And I think the ghosts complain and kind of go, ah, no, as they're going through You the can machine, see them, they're kind of like right? swimming away. Yeah, they don't the want current. it. They, they really don't want it, but they eventually become portraits again. And I read this in terms of monster theory as a correction of category crisis, where the ghost is living between life and death. They're not quite there, but they're also not gone. And so by putting them through this machine, you are setting things right. You are taking this uncomfortable in-between state 
and turning it into something tangible and physical, like a portrait. And of course, that's not perfect, because as we'll talk about in a moment, portraits themselves are sort of living in a state of category crisis, like the person is there, but they're also gone. The portrait is portraying them and keeping them quote-unquote alive, but they're also dead. You know, it's not a, a perfect fix, but that seems to me to be the intention here. We're taking something haunted, something not right, something in between, something uncanny, and turning it into something mundane, like a portrait. Jack, I want you to draw me like one of your French girls. To me, this seems like a matter of technology overcoming monsters, or an attempt at that. So there's a quote from King Boo when you're preparing for the final battle in Luigi's mansion, where he says, I'm not afraid of you, you fool. I fear only that infernal Poltergust 3000 you carry on your back, stupid machine. But I am a king among boos. I swear it. I shall fear no mere house-cleaning device. <laughs> so this is making me think of a lot of things we've already discussed, right? right. I- I'm thinking about the fear of technology as something that can bust ghosts. But I'm also thinking about the fact that he's saying I'm a king. And so we kind of have to talk about how portraits often represent some sort of patriarch and some sort of social status. And it's kind of interesting to me that the ghost is saying like you you can't get me i'm a king which reminds me of portraits kind of putting forth this idea like you can't kill me i can never die i have the status to have a portrait made of myself which is also funny because the ghosts get trapped in portraits they are not even being banished in a way that removes them from like living memory, quote unquote, they are being made fixed again. They have become unfixed and now we're fixing them. And it's almost like they're getting what they asked for. Like, I want to be fixed in time and to never die. Well, okay, go back into your portrait and that's exactly what you will be. So there is something that I'm thinking about here, which is a common debate in the fandom around these games which is are the ghosts actually the spirits of the deceased or not oh it's never exactly stated outright in the game that there were people at the end of the game we learned that the mansion was just conjured up by the booze that's right so all of these ideas that these people once interacted with this space in real ways comes into question. Was it all a dream, essentially? It was all a dream! But Quest, if it was all a simulation, does that make it any less real? (laughs) You want to bring Baudrillard in here? Bring Baudrillard in here. Should we summon him? No. Okay. No. I was not even, like, listening exactly when I said no. That's so funny. Uh, (laughs) But the other part of that, which I think is less 
what people really focus on here because they're mostly interested in on a meta level on was Nintendo not wanting to imply death in uh, this, yeah. which is funny given the ways that video games work in general. You have lives. There are often skeleton enemies. You know, there are many like implications of death. <laughs> There's a boneyard and a graves and what have you. But there's also the aspect of each character is so archetypal. Mm -hmm. All of the ghosts, like they're given names, but they're not much more than an archetype of what this represents. So that way you as player can look at it and immediately know how to solve it. Mm -hmm. And I think that that also is part of, not to mention the bright colors and the funny way that they're rendered, the portrait ghosts are rendered more realistically than the other ghost enemies in the game and far more realistically than the booze. Right. But they are still quite a caricature. Like, if Mario and Luigi are humans, these ghosts do not quite look like humans. They don't even look like Princess Peach, who looks more human than Mario and Luigi. Oh, did I win? You know, like, mm -hmm. there's varying levels, and it's almost one of those pieces of media where ghost becomes a category that rests more on tropes than it does on the definition of being the lingering spirit of the deceased. I absolutely agree with you, and I think that ghosts may be one of the most easily recognized tropes. I think you get that in a lot of ghost media, but you're especially going to get it in a children's game. And I wonder if, this is beyond my research, but I wonder if this game being developed in Japan to cater to both American and Japanese audiences had something to do with that. Because I, I know that Japanese conceptions of ghosts are different in a lot of ways, from the, the tropes that we have in U.S. media. I'm just throwing out ideas there. I'm not 100% sure, but I, I just wonder if there was sort of this, oh, let's take this American-European idea of a haunted house. You know, it looks like a Victorian mansion in Europe or the U.S., and let's let's play with this and let's have some fun with these really typical characters you know yeah and i will just add despite the fact that there is a, a huge discrepancy in the way that the portrait ghosts are rendered and the more common ghost enemies are rendered and then the booze as well we find out that their origin in the house is the ghost painter painting them into existence so yeah. even the ones that don't look like they were once alive still have the same point of origin which is also again another point against them ever necessarily being the spirits of the deceased and what that brings to mind is the idea that they're almost analogous to genies it's like instead of a lamp and then the gin coming out it's like the portrait and then the ghost comes out this is my crackpot theory I just came up with right now. Okay. Don't at me. You don't know where to at me. Um, We're not on TikTok. <laughs> but 
I, it's just an interesting facet to this, and I'm sure you're going to go further into the actual portrait side of this, but I just wanted to make sure that we covered the, are they dead? Are they undead? Who yeah. Knows? Yeah, there is this interesting sort of cyclical thing going on where the ghosts create the portraits, which create the ghosts, and in a more typical haunted portrait, you would have a human creating the portrait and then the ghost lives on so there, there's it's a little bit less abstract but yeah let's talk a little bit about gothic portraits which are one of the most common gothic literary tropes you see gothic portraits in so 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 many books and later in so many movies and video games one of my resources for this section was Camilla Elliott's Portraiture and British Gothic Fiction, The Rise of Picture Identification. And I just want to share this idea with you because I think it kind of illustrates what I was talking about when it comes to the social status and the desire to immortalize yourself through a portrait. It took me a little while to unpack this, but I'm going to try to simplify this idea that Eliot comes up with, which is that portraits before photography functioned in much the same way that like a driver's license or ID card functioned, but also, and she doesn't use this analogy, but I'm going to use it. It's It's like a cross between a driver's license and like a... Greek emperor bust. A divine man. Such talented fingers. But oh, what he did to my bust. Oh, that's the head, you know. Where it's this way of showing people who you are, who otherwise might not be able to see you. And, and for example, you know, you hear about royal families sending portraits of the princesses and princes to other countries to say like, oh, are you interested in being a suitor for my son or daughter, right? Um, but also, like I was saying, you have this huge elaborate portrait above the mantle or like in the dining room. And that's your way of asserting your status in a house. And when people come to visit, they know that you are the person who has the status in that place. So it becomes a sort of picture identification of who you are, and it asserts your status. Therefore, when we talk about haunted portraits, we are often talking about some of the major anxieties that go along with a haunted house, which is the, the loss of social status, the transitory nature of living in a place, the sort of tragedies of history that come with the inequality of of someone owning a mansion and having people working in that that domestic space there's just so many social issues that kind of get buried in portraiture and in houses that come up through gothic literature in portraits i hope that makes sense it's a little convoluted but let me just give some examples, and I think that will help. There is a gothic portrait in 
one of our first Gothic novels, The Castle of Otranto, which is 1764. That's Walpole. And That's where the term Gothic originates. Exactly, yes. In the way we use it, not we're not ignoring the Roman Goths or the <laughs> barbarian Goths who... Anyway. Yeah, and originally I was going to quote a whole section from the Castle of Otranto, but you can go and, and read this section. Public domain, baby. Yeah, it has to do with a haunted portrait coming to try and interfere with something going on in the house. There's a, I don't I don't want to spoil it, which is part of the reason I'm not going to quote it, but there's a really climactic scene in the story and right as that's happening, a portrait comes to life and interferes. Edgar Allan Poe also had a haunted tapestry in <laughs> Let me try it. Or you want to try it? I I have a 1,600-day streak in German on Duolingo. Oh, all right, Quest. Go for it. Metzengerstein? Thank you. 1832. <laughs> That's my guess. Um, and so we have kind of a callback to medieval tapestries. Ooh, the haunting of the old age, right? That should be Stein. Metzengerstein. Metzen me uh, I'm not going <laughs> to embarrass um, one-eighth of my heritage. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I am one-eighth embarrassed. Oh, yeah, me too. All the time. Uh, we also have The Canterville Ghost by Oscar Wilde, and that's another tapestry ghost story, which is actually a satire of a ghost story. And then, of course, The Picture of Dorian Gray, which we could go on and on about, but... More like Dorian Gay... Because Oscar Wilde, the I, I origin of queerness. I don't, I don't get it, Quest. <laughs> I don't get it. Can you explain it to no. me? Okay. Well, then I'm just going to go on. We also have to mention Disneyland's Haunted Mansion. There are the changing portraits in the hallway as you're going through the queue into the main attraction. And every time the lightning flashes, you get a transition from the woman into the tiger the right. bust into medusa there's also the portrait of the woman who ages rapidly oh. which has its own sort of dorian gray thing going on mm -hmm. where aging and, and death is part of the anxiety of the haunted portrait and there are the stretching portraits the and best. there are the dueling portraits in the ballroom where the, the ghosts turn towards each other and, and, and shoot at each other. There's also the ones in the attic, the wedding portraits. That's right. I almost forgot because there's some little part of me that doesn't think of that room as canon. I <laughs> It's feel like that. fanfic for me. Someday that... we'll talk about that. Yeah. And I, I don't... Yeah. We're going to have to talk about the Haunted Mansion because I... I'm a big... Get ready for a five-part episode. I'm a big Doom Buggies stan over here, so... I would like to contribute one example, just because it's Please. very dear to my heart, which yeah. is The Mystery of Irma Vep, okay. which is a play by Charles Ludlum, which also is a parody of gothic literature. Mm -hmm. And he touches on so many different gothic tropes. There's a werewolf, there's a mummy, there's vampires, and there is a haunted portrait, and at the end of act one i'm pretty sure the portrait opens up and we find that irma vip is still alive behind it Ooh, 
Ooh, that's a good. You one. will love that play. That yeah. is definitely something to put on our docket. Oh yeah, I want to do that. So I guess the real takeaway here is not just that there are a billion of these, which there are, but that the Gothic portraits have a lot of potential to interact with various societal hauntings from war to aging to medieval history to the matriarch or patriarch and the the fall of that figure yeah i was going to say i kept thinking about like the anxieties of producing an heir because if you go into a ruin or a haunted mansion and there is a portrait of someone no one took it no one was there to inherit the house yeah and one of my favorite examples of a portrait ghost i'm not sure why i didn't put this in here maybe just because i had so many already but in hawthorne's the house of the seven gables there is a portrait that is it, it's just it, everyone interprets it differently but it's, it's the the patriarch of the the house and sometimes people feel like it's judging them sometimes people feel like it's for them and it's just always looking over everybody and people are having these really powerful reactions to it and that book is very much about the anxiety of producing an heir and what is going to happen to the fortune and and what the right path is for the youth and and i think the portrait is definitely a character in that drama and what's going to happen is that luigi is going to have to travel through the house and collect all the money and build his own mansion that's right so um if you want more examples of gothic portraits um including real ghosts caught on canvas Canvas. uh there is an excellent wikipedia.org entry uh that's called list of haunted paintings and these are actually real life haunted paintings so there are paintings out in the world that people believe are haunted and you can look at the list there. But also, if you want fictional examples, you can just Google gothic portraits in literature, in film, and I'm sure that you can find the extensive lists that I came across when I was doing this research. I want to talk about one more thing related to Camilla Elliott's research on portraiture and portrait identification before we talk a little bit more about Luigi's Mansion. This quote, it it just speaks so succinctly of what we've already been saying about portraiture. So she writes that portraiture has a long-standing association with absent presence. And so absent presence is so great when you're talking about ghosts because it's that sense that something is gone, but it is still present. It is still with us. And so that really has been the function of portraiture forever. And so it's no surprise that we think of portraits as a haunted place because ghosts are absent presence and portraits are absent presence. And so as we've kind of said before, one of Eliot's preoccupations when it comes to picture identification is the power of a picture or a portrait to 
be a, a space for class identity, for power and resources to be flaunted by the person in the portrait, even beyond the grave. I think that that brings us into our next topic, which is power and class consciousness in Luigi's Mansion. I love that I get to say that, and this is why I love doing this podcast. Power and class consciousness in Luigi's Mansion on GameCube. Um, (laughs) um, But how can we ignore the fact that Luigi thinks that he has won a mansion. Luigi is a working class man. He is. A, <laughs> don't laugh. He is a plumber. I mean, it's we just can't. Funny because the plumbing in Mario Bros. is so absent. They go through pipes, and that's usually it. In Luigi's Mansion Three, he actually does have a plunger. Oh, I as- thought you were going to say. In Luigi's Mansion 3, he actually does have to go and do his day job before at night he can go into the mansion and and explore. (laughs) No, just one of his ghost fighting tools is a plunger. Okay. (laughs) So, I mean, it brings the plumbing in more. So, (laughs) Luigi is a working class hero. Right. And he has been sold this really absurd lottery situation right surprise you won a mansion it's like when you get those awful phone calls that's like you won a trip to hawaii or those ads from the pop-ups from the 2000s congratulations you've won (laughs) a free ipod nano (laughs) yes yes only 90s kids so luigi wins his version of a free ipod nano but it's actually a house and it's a mansion Which, of course, turns out to be an illusion that's constructed by King Boo. It's it's an illusion constructed by ghosts. And so I just have to read my note because I already said this, but it says, Luigi is (laughs) (laughs) Luigi is presumably working class. (laughs) Parentheses. A plumber from Brooklyn. Bada bing bada boo. I'm haunting here. (laughs) And he's out of his element in an antiquated mansion. Okay, so this is like rags encounters riches. (laughs) The prince and the pauper. (sighs) But in all seriousness, we do have a story here where this promise of of wealth and luxury turns into horror right like you have you've been sold this beautiful mansion that and now your life is going to totally change you have not just home ownership but like the ultimate home ownership but as soon as he enters the house even before he feels that something is wrong and he's very right It gets very complicated when we start to talk about how it's not even a real space. It's totally an illusion. But in a certain way, that's a a perfect way to talk about class because so many things that are promised to workers 
are just these big dream houses that are constructed by ghosts, as in, like, Derrida, like, our future is constructed by the ghosts of the past. Okay, we're getting too deep here, but... Well, I was just thinking that, I mean, what it sounds to me like you're saying is that Luigi of the working class has been promised this incredible opportunity at homeownership. It will just (laughs) fall into his lap, but upon closer inspection, it's shitty and it's not real. And then he has to go through a lot of hard work to actually realize it. Exactly. Yeah. And... I kind of I don't I don't want to get too far off the rails here but I kind of love that the ghosts created this house because what is a ghost but something ephemeral that won't go away from the past and if we're going to get into class and if we're going to get a little marxist here so many of the dreams that are sold to the working classes are these dreams from the past are these nostalgic ideas of things that could be and i feel like that's totally what this mansion is for luigi it's this antiquated idea of wealth that has fallen into his lap but when he actually gets it he finds that it's full of all of this crap and and history that you don't actually want once you get it. So that's my Marxist analysis of Luigi's mansion. And forgive me if if it's a little bit wonky. I'm still getting over my laughing fit saying that Luigi is a plumber from Brooklyn. Presumably from Brooklyn. (laughs) Presumably working class from Brooklyn. No question. Mario. Um I'm cutting. Do not. I do not want that in <laughs> quest. Edit this out. Okay. Before we move on to talking about doubling and the Mario Luigi <laughs> Brooklyn Brotherhood. Um before we move on, I just want to also mention and quest you were kind of getting at this that Luigi has to do a lot of work in order to clear this mansion of ghosts. And I mean, eventually he gets a whole brand new mansion or it's not even a mansion really. It's almost, it's more of a house. It depends on how much treasure you collect. Yeah. It's very funny because this is kind of a convention. I'm used to it from like DDR, Mm. But, like, there's a certain kind of brand, especially of arcade game, where at the end of a level you get graded on a right, scale. Right, yeah. And after you play the entirety of Luigi's Mansion, which is a short-ish console game as far as hours of gameplay, you get graded and then the size and elegance of the house that he gets to build depends on how much you were able to collect as far as the coins, the bills, and the jewels. So that's even better when it comes to my point here, which is that you have to work really hard to get the real mansion, the one that is not made up and full of 
creepy ghosts. And so the game kind of ends up reifying this myth of hard work pays off, that there's no such thing as a free lunch. What is also really funny there is just that from what I can remember from Luigi's Mansion to Dark Moon, you do see him hanging out in the house before this second story begins where Mm -hmm. he is going in completely new haunted mansions. Mm -hmm. And I'm pretty sure that the house that he is in in those cutscenes is rather middle of the road. It's kind of if you had gotten one of the lower scores. Uh So it's almost like they render, I think that the highest ending is like called like the double A ending or something. It's Mm -hmm. like they almost rendered all of the higher grades not canon in the future titles, which I just think you would have to render some of them not canon in your next game because that's how games works. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, it is interesting because there's usually an implication in games that the completionist route is the true route or the best possible ending is the true ending of the game. Right. Otherwise, you didn't really beat it. Exactly. And so it's so interesting that while it reifies it in how you can play the game, the future games kind of undercut that to a degree. Yeah, so you're saying, like, you can't get the best house in the future games? What I'm saying is that you can get whichever house at the end of Luigi's Mansion, but in the sequels, when they show cutscenes, it is not the best house. Okay, yeah. The the house that he starts out in in the future games is not the best house, so therefore that is not the canon house that he ends up with. Right. Even if you could make that the ending. Right. So either way, he can only he works very hard and he can only get to a certain place. There is no grand mansion for a plumber from Brooklyn in in Luigi's <laughs> mansion in the Luigi's mansion universe. In the Marxist analysis of Luigi's mansion. Right. Yeah. There's no such thing as a free lunch. There's no such thing as a free mansion. Let's let's talk about our favorite underdog, Luigi, and his presence as a main character in this game and the missing Mario and all of that and how that works in a, a gothic sense. The year 2013 and also 2014 was the year of Luigi. I thought this... every year was the year of Luigi. So this was a specific marketing thing from nintendo oh okay and so then, this isn't just for our podcast no this is it is for every year is the year of luigi for us yes right. okay but okay. it also became a meme then after 2014 just people kind of extending the year of luigi good <laughs> lord it's been a decade since the year of luigi if it's a zodiac thing then it must just come back every 12 right yeah that's a frightening so why does luigi need a year luigi needs a year because every other year is mario's year March 10th is Mario Day because MAR10 looks like a Mario. Um, so this is like Women's History Month? Exactly. Okay. Mario. Luigi is a woman. <laughs> Luigi is woman coded. Yes. <laughs> this is why we need <laughs> the year of Luigi. <laughs> Luigi is a minority. What I'm trying to say. He is from Brooklyn. <laughs> a very diverse place (laughs) okay what i'm trying to say 
is that the advent of Luigi's Mansion was intentional because everything had been focused on Mario before. Mm. A foil is a character that serves as a contrasting figure to another character. When I explain foils in my English class, I use Spongebob and Squidward. No talent! No talent! No talent! No talent! Spongebob is the happy-go-lucky enthusiastic fry cook. And then we have... Squidward, who is the perpetually upset, grumpy fry cook. Right. Mario is a franchise of many foils, and it's kind of even become a meme. You have Mario and you have Luigi, but you also have Mario and you have Wario. You also have Mario and Peach. You have Peach and Daisy. You have Wario and Waluigi. (coughs) Everyone kind of has a counterpart. Well, you need to have a different color skin to play when you are in Super Mario. Right, that's why Luigi was invented. Luigi was invented to be player two. So Mario is red and Luigi is green. And it wasn't until later that Luigi was given unique characterization. Specifically, actually, a lot of his characterization was invented by Charles Martinet, the voice actor, which is a cool detail. Hmm. So... To contrast with Mario, Luigi is timid and fastidious. He is the second banana. He's also tall. He's also a little bit taller. And it follows that because of these personality traits, whereas Mario is brave and bold, that then Luigi would have to overcome his his timidness and face psychological threats instead of feats of jumping. (laughs) So not only does Luigi have to overcome his phasmophobia in Luigi's Mansion, but he also has to undergo this quest alone in order to save Mario. It's all commentary in some way on his status as Mario's foil, as player two now becoming player one. So he has more opportunity for character growth because he starts off as player two already. He's not the hero. Yeah, he's the underdog. The underdog. So then let's talk about Bowser. Bowser is Mario's rival and antagonist for most Super Mario games, but he tends to only really represent a physical threat. He is the trope of the dragon threatening the princess Mm -hmm. his plans are normally more simplistic and he tends to be hoisted by his own petard which showcases his oafishness king boo on the other hand is clearly playing mind games with luigi i'm not gonna play those games mind games board games by separating him from mario and forcing him to face his greatest fear that are ghosts So what we have is Luigi and King Boo living in the realm of the mind, and that's where the conflict occurs, while Mario tends to live more in the physical world where he's, you know, fighting Bowser, who's also a very physical villain. Exactly. 
And that's interesting because we're led to believe throughout the game that Bowser is the bad guy of Luigi's Mansion, down to the boss battle at the very end, Mm -hmm. even though it's not. Even that's a mind game. Yeah, and it's all about Luigi's fear of Bowser, Luigi's fear that he might have to do this alone. Mm -hmm. And I want to put a pin in that because we'll come back to that in a second. But also, and this was just fascinating to me, it's so weird of a theory. But Goldstein posits that the haunted house is a foil to the enchanted castle in children's media. All of the pleasurable aspects of the enchanted castle are matched with the ominous and sinister haunted house. The hub world of Mario's first 3D venture, Super Mario 64, is Peach's castle. And it's bright, and it's filled with soothing music, it doesn't have any enemies in it, and it's home to paintings that transport Mario into far-off lands. Contrast that with Luigi's Mansion, which is dark, it is silent at best, and at worst filled with unsettling music, and it's home to fiendish specters. Once again, the haunted house looks safe, but isn't. And those ghosts have appeared from paintings. And a thing I was thinking about most recently about this was that where Mario goes into portraits to go to another place, ghosts come out of portraits to come into this place. They're different doors. Yeah, it's like agency in transporting yourself versus being invaded. Yeah, Yes, yes, exactly. Like travel versus, like luxury travel versus invasion and colonization. Yeah. Siege, yeah. Another dyad I want to bring up is uh, on a more meta level or intertextual level. We have Luigi's first game, Luigi's Mansion, on the GameCube, and we have Super Mario Sunshine, the spiritual successor to Super Mario 64. Super Mario Sunshine, one of my favorite games, and it does have a bunch of ghost levels, so we will talk about that someday, I hope, is bright and warm, it's tropical, it's vibrant in its colors, it focuses on outdoor exploration, and it deals with a solar motif. I mean, sunshine in the name, you have to collect these little shine sprites. Luigi's Mansion is dark and cold, it's a temperate climate, the colors are unsaturated, it focuses on indoor exploration, and it takes place entirely at night. But what also really highlights the two of them as a pair is that where Mario normally is just jumping on enemies and it's all about these these physical skills, Mario gains technology in Super Mario Sunshine. He gets a water pack that he has to use to solve most of his puzzles. Thank you for purchasing this item from Gad Science Incorporated. I am Flood, a flash liquidizer ultra-dousing device. I hope to be of assistance. Also made by EGAD. Oh. And it just completely showcases the two of these as counterparts in this era of the GameCube, which I think really goes to show, once again, just the foil status of the two characters. That they got such different narratives to fit their stories. 
Yeah, and I don't really know the storyline, if there is one, behind Super Mario Sunshine. But it does strike me as interesting that Luigi is helping Egad to achieve his own goals when it comes to putting the portraits back where they belong, putting the ghosts back into the portraits. And it's not so much... It doesn't feel like the story is so much about Luigi clearing out the mansion to make it hospitable for himself. He is trying to find Mario, but he's really a helper throughout the entire story. Like, it's about him still helping others, getting Mario back, helping Gad with his goals for the mansion. And so I think that's kind of interesting as well when it comes to his status as a character. Yeah, and also another commonality between the two games is that the mansion would not be plagued with ghosts if Egad didn't collect them for them to escape his collection. Right. And in Sunshine, spoiler alert for Super Mario Sunshine, the paintbrush that Baby Bowser or Bowser Jr. is wielding that creates all of the problems for Mario was also created by Egad. So you have Mario using an Egad invention and Bowser Jr. using an Egad invention to undo each other. Huh. This is a thing that people have questioned for a long time, but this almost morally gray, ambiguous nature of like what side is Egad on? Well, here's me putting my Marxist hat on again. Wonder what that looks like. It's probably very plain. Anyway, um, <laughs> to me, I, I read this as the inventor of technology making it the working man's problem to fix the technology after it's already been sent out into the world. And I think that's an interesting... This could get us totally off topic, so I don't want to dive too far into it, but maybe it'll come up again in a different podcast but I think a lot of the technological issues we're dealing with right now come from this place of, we're going to give the internet to the world. Oh, dang, there's a bunch of problems with the internet, but you have it now. And technology has been advancing so rapidly that there's less of a responsibility on the people who create that technology. And I think now we're starting to have that conversation with social media and movies like The Social Dilemma. That's what this makes me think of. There's this guy creating a technology that he had the power to manifest, but not necessarily the power to control after it was out in the world. And now a working class plumber from Brooklyn <laughs> has to pick up the slack and fix the problem. As plumbers do. <laughs> yes. So beyond foils, there's also the idea of doubling. A narrative foil is an example of doubling. Doubling is exactly what it sounds like. The double is a secondary representation of the self. And this is a really common theme in Gothic literature. Because the double usually represents in a Freudian sense, the id of the hero. So we're talking about 
Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, Harker and Dracula, Victor and the Creature, Laura and who is that? <laughs> Carmilla, the best lesbian vampire. Well, and also, I mean, we even have Dorian Gray and his portrait Yes, is doubling as well. So the id for the uninitiated is the part of the brain that seeks to sate the animal desires. I want to eat. I want to sleep. I want to fuck and does not care about the ramifications thereof. It's just the shortest possible path to get the thing that you need. And in polite society, that is the part of yourself that you have to control, push below the surface. And when we have something that's pushed below the surface, we have a ghost. We have a specter. Or something. We have the gothic. We have the gothic. It's, it's haunting us because it doesn't fully go away. It just lives in the shadows of ourselves. Right. And Dr. Jekyll and... Mr. Hyde are the perfect example for this. Dr. Jekyll is the ego and Mr. Hyde is the id. Right. And in literature and in subsequent media, these parts of the self become characters. Jekyll, Jekyll, Hyde, Jekyll, Hyde, Hyde, Jekyll, 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 Hyde, Jekyll, Hyde. And we already gave a disclaimer about this, but just because we're talking about Freud does not mean that we think that Freud is right, does not mean that we love Freud. I find psychoanalysis rather tedious a lot of the time, but if you keep listening, if you stick with us, you will see that there are some interesting things to unpack from Luigi's Mansion when we look at the idea of doubling. Luigi, as a double of Mario, is not the id, demonstrably. Luigi is the superego. Luigi is all about being repressed and about keeping himself laced tightly because he's so concerned. He's so timid. He doesn't want to offend. He does not want to go beyond himself. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, on the topic of doubling, ghosts as a monster represent a significant double of humans. Through the ghost, we are presented with the possibility of another class of people different from ourselves due to their deceased status. This results in objection, as they represent the presence of death in our midst, and the uncanny due to their imperfect resemblance of our humanity. And also, we can bring in the ways that portraits are similar to this the way that haunted houses are similar to this the portrait is a double of the self the haunted house is a double of the house and the house is an extension of the self all of these metaphors are at play here yeah. i'm making a lot of hand gestures that you can't see but i can and they're great very helpful so why is luigi afraid of ghosts annabelle because ghosts are scary He has not yet learned the very important tenet, scary equals funny. No! Boo! Ah. (laughs) Luigi is afraid of ghosts because ghosts remind him of his own mortality and present a threat of the unknown. Sure. That's always a part of it, isn't it? Quest, why is Luigi afraid of ghosts? (laughs) I really didn't mean there to be a right and wrong answer. But 
my hypothesis here is that Luigi is afraid of ghosts because Luigi and ghosts are one in the same. Luigi is a ghost. No. <laughs> but yes, metaphorically. Yes. He's Mario's ghost. Luigi is the double of Mario. <laughs> okay. And the ghost is the double of the person. The presence of a ghost when Luigi is already at remove from his own persona, because his own persona, metatextually, is entirely centered around Mario, the ghost represents the fragility of his own state of being. So that this was is, so... No, no, that makes sense. Yeah. This is like when you meet someone who is too much like you, and your first response is, ugh, I hate that person, right? So Luigi sees a ghost and he goes, it's from, and on a subconscious level, like we're not talking about Luigi going, oh my goodness, my relationship with my brother. But, but really, like he, he sees a double and on some sort of instinctual gut level, it's terrifying because he is a double himself. Yeah, and while I don't necessarily think that anybody thought that through at this level in the production of the game, it feels so right mm -hmm. that you have Luigi being the more psychologically motivated character, given Martinet's invented per like personification of him, mm -hmm. and that invents this problem of, well, what's so scary for Luigi ghosts? And then on this textual level, there is the idea that, yeah, that, that his own personhood is threatened by the presence of ghosts. Part of me thinks that if Mario were the main character in this game, he wouldn't even really see ghosts. Like, if, if we're going to go with this hypothesis that we contribute to our own reality and that the ghosts that we see reflect the situation that we're in culturally and personally i mean i feel like it would be a totally different game if mario were the main character it wouldn't work in the same way and it is a different game because super mario sunshine super mario 64 super mario galaxy so many of the mainline mario titles have a ghost level but it's always a level and when mario goes into a ghost level it is all about just the immediate threat you run and you jump and you solve the puzzles mm -hmm. and it's just a a hurdle to be overleaped it is not this intense psychological dilemma for mario it's just yeah. you solve this thing and, and then the ghost is defeated and, and Thank you so much for playing my game. Like, <laughs> there's not any more depth to it, whereas Luigi has three whole titles all to himself that are repeatedly about him entering into the dark place and being terrified by these ghosts <laughs> yeah. and being separated from anyone else who could feasibly help him except for Egad. Right. So we don't even have to imagine what it would be like if it were Mario Right. first banana <laughs> because we've already seen it so the psychological journey foisted upon luigi by king boo forces him to take on the vacant role of protagonist in mario's absence 
Though we can reasonably assert that Nintendo did not intend any grand statement about doubling or counterparts in Luigi's Mansion, there's something profound in making a narrative foil who suffers from phasmophobia. Luigi fears the glimpse ghosts give to his own mortality, but he also fears the glimpse they give him into his own status as the other, the second banana, to Mario. Which is pretty much everything we just said, but written in a beautiful paragraph. It is a beautiful paragraph. Well done. Thank you. Yeah. So, is there anything else we need to say? I don't know. What did you... Did you enjoy your experience with Luigi's Mansion? I did. I thought it was really charming. I thought at first when you proposed this episode that it was going to be absolutely grueling sitting through Let's Plays of this game, even though I liked it conceptually. I was just thinking, this can't be any fun if I'm not actually playing it. But I really enjoyed it, and I was maybe more excited to talk to you about this game than about anything else that we've covered. And I really, really like all of the other topics. So it was a, a nice surprise. I agree. It was also, I really did not know what to expect when we were planning this episode. Because as I was saying, once I delved into the research and I found there wasn't a lot to find, I was really concerned with the idea of like, well, how am I going to say anything that's well supported? Yeah. And this one has been so exciting to really get to say our own statements about that I feel really confident in. I feel like these were some really interesting takeaways that we had to make. And I did not expect, because I knew what I had cooked up, but I intentionally didn't read your notes. And I did not expect, even with the things I've read about haunted houses, that we would get into a class consciousness analysis of Luigi's Mansion. I think that's sick. It was so much fun. So I think that's going to be all for this episode if you want to follow us on the internet and find out what's going on we have an instagram we have a tumblr we also have an email the instagram and tumblr are ghosts were people too just all full spelled out and the email is gwp2pod at gmail.com if you have any resources again on video games particularly Uh, what we talked about today or any topics related to today's discussion we would love to to see it because we're we're curious about this emerging area of academia and ghosts are so popular in video games we would love to make more video game centric episodes in the future we just need a place to start on any of them yeah recommendations on games are always welcome as well things you want to hear about so thank you for joining us and as it says on the ouija board mario 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 i don't think that's what it says on the ouija board that was the luigi board oh take it away Annabelle. Goodbye.